Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Turn with me in your testaments to the gospel according to Mark, to chapter 8. Very familiar portion, reading from verse 27. You will remember that this came some few months before the crucifixion. Jesus had spent, we do not know the exact amount of time, some indications are up to three years with his disciples. And now he is ready to turn his face to Jerusalem and to culminate his life here upon the earth. He has taken his disciples aside to have some private time with them before the trials of the next six months. And so we get this passage in Mark 8, verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. And if I may, I would like to retranslate that a little more literally. Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan, for you do not think the way God thinks. You think the way man thinks. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Will you pray with me for just a moment again? Our Father, we give you thanks for the privilege of being in your house, and we give you thanks for the privilege of being with your people. And tonight we take comfort in the promise that you gave to us that when two or three of us 
meet in your name, that you will be in our midst. It is not the word of a man that we need to hear tonight, it is the word, your word, the word of the living God. And so somehow in the fellowship that we have together in you, let that word be clear to us tonight, so that we may think the way you think, and we will give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Way back in the distant ages of the past, when I went to college as a freshman, I found sitting in chapel next to me, because we were seated alphabetically, two young men whose names were Kilburn. And so they sat on my left and I sat on their right, K-I-L-K-I-N. In the course of my freshman year, I began to get acquainted with them and found, to my surprise, that they had not grown up in the United States, that they had grown up overseas, and that their parents were missionaries in the Far East. And I uh, had never met anyone before who came from a missionary family. I found them extremely interesting young men because uh, I remember that their room was filled with all sorts of strange things that I had never seen before. They would go to school for a little while, and then they'd sell part of what was in their room, and then they'd go to school a little, little longer. And that was one of the ways that they got through school. But uh, I developed a friendship with them. And then I found, to my surprise, that their parents were in the midst of a war area in the Far East. And... Ultimately, we got the word that their mother and father were in a prisoner of war camp in China. Now, that made them all the more interesting to me because every day when we were in chapel together, I was conscious that as they sat there and as we prayed, they were praying for their mother and father who were in very difficult circumstances in a war zone and in a prisoner of war camp. Some of you that are in my general age bracket may remember the Grips home. It was that Swedish ship that uh, was used to bring home missionaries and others that were released from prisoner of war camps in the Far East. And in due time, the parents of my friends came home. Along with them were the parents of some other young people that I had met who also were missionaries in the Far East. I remember with great eagerness, I wanted to get to know some of them, and I did, and I heard their story. When I saw them and met them and began to know them and had some friendship with those parents, I remember what a surprise it was to me. I'd expected people who had been under very difficult circumstances to be a bit beaten down by life and perhaps sorry for themselves and feeling a bit heroic that they had uh, gone through what they had gone through and escaped. And I remember what a surprise. They were emaciated. There was no question about that. I remember the mother of my friend. She had obviously been a woman of some stature, and her legs were very small and tiny. I found that their daily bowl of rice, a lot of it moved before they ate it or before they cooked it. And I found a lot of other things that made, meant that they indicated their life was extremely unpleasant. But I had never met people as joyous. I had never met people as free 
I had never met people as radiant and as much alive as those persons were, men and women. As I began to watch them, I said, you know, they're Christians and then they're Christians. And that was a basic step in my learning as a Christian. I watched them and I said, there's something in their lives that I don't have in my life. There was not only a difference in them in the way they lived, there was a difference in them in their vocabulary. And I remember that that uh, intrigued me at first and then sort of terrified me. Because they would talk about consecration, but they would talk about a total consecration. They would talk about a surrender, and they would talk about a total surrender. They would speak about being sanctified and made for the master's use, but they would talk about entire sanctification. And it was those qualifications on those words that were familiar to me that put a bit of terror in me. Because I knew something about surrender. I'd surrendered my life. I felt to Christ, and I knew that Christ had come into my heart, into my life, and transformed me, and I knew him as a living Savior. But the thought of being totally surrendered and entirely his was something that caused me to back off a bit. And I thought if I were to let God have total possession of my life, what would he do with it? And there that inner terror began to come. I remember wrestling with that and thinking, what about this thought? Is it really true that there are Christians and then there are Christians? And I'm in one category and they're in another and they're in the category that I ought to be in. As I began to live with the scripture, I began to turn to it and say, does the scripture support this? And one of the things that surprised me was where it came through most clearly to me. And over the years since, it has been getting clearer and clearer. And the book of Mark is one of the ones that has been a great help to me. I'd like to speak to you tonight as one Christian to another and as one pilgrim to another. Because if you're here tonight for this kind of service and on this kind of night, it is because there's a hunger in your heart to know God and to be intimate with him. And so let me speak to you as one fellow traveler on the Christian way with another. But as I ran through the Gospel of Mark, I became very interested in the way Mark did his teaching. At first, Mark confused me because all Mark is is a bunch of stories. You get the story about Jesus teaching, the story about him healing a demoniac, the story about him healing Peter's mother-in-law. You get the story about him delivering, setting free a leper from his leprosy. You have the story of him forgiving sins to a paralytic and restoring the paralytic. You have him stopping a storm and saving the disciples in the midst of it. You get him uh, bringing back a child from the dead. You just get a succession of stories in Mark. And at first I thought, well, these are very interesting. But then one day as I began to live with the Gospel of Mark, I noticed that the way he began was, he said, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. And I began to realize that those stories were the good news that he had to tell. When Jesus came... He obviously couldn't tell us who he was, because if I were to tell you tonight that I was God or God's eternal son, you'd be looking for a place to put me away. And Jesus knew that, and so he could not begin that way. So what did he do? 
he began to demonstrate in his life the power of God within him so that people could begin to see who he was. Because the reason he came was so that we could know God and know him more intimately. John said it, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him, or he has declared him. And so I realize that Mark's account was to make clear to us what God is like, and he is God's Son was the revelation of him. And so I began looking more carefully at those stories and realized that Paul in the book of Romans teaches theology by proposition. All that's sinned and come short of the glory of God, and then he develops that argument. And the only way we're saved is we're justified by faith, and he develops that argument. It is a logical, systematic presentation and a good Western frame of mind. Those, most of those Jews didn't do that, and Mark did not. He taught his theology by stories. So I looked more closely at the stories, and I noticed that the first half of the book of Mark is made up entirely of stories about Jesus. And every story has in it, either explicitly or implicitly, a question. Who is this fellow that he can do these things? You get it in the first chapter? When Jesus teaches, and he teaches as no man ever taught in that country before. And so they said, he's different from our preachers. He's different from our teachers. He has an authority about him. He makes sense. Wonder where he gets that kind of wisdom and that kind of knowledge and that kind of certainty about what he says. And so they said, who is he that he teaches like this? Well, and John says it differently. John says that Jesus is the truth. Now, John makes the proposition, but Mark gives you the illustration of him teaching so people say, that makes sense. I can follow that. I believe that. And so they came back to hear more. While he is teaching them, suddenly there's a demoniac in the crowd who troubles them, the service. And Jesus turns and casts the devil out of the man. And when he casts the devil out of the man, they turn to each other and say, look, he took the devil right out of that guy. Now, I don't know about anybody else, but Peter and John and Andrew and James evidently were there because this was their community and their home. And I can hear Peter as he turns to Andy and says, Andy, did you see that? He took the devil right out of that guy. And Andy said, he sure did, didn't he? And then I can hear Peter saying to Andy, Andy, do you think he could take the devil out of me? Because I don't believe there is a normal human being that's ever lived very long but that sometimes, somewhere, he's been aware that he had evil within him. It may be just nothing more than deep resentment. It may be unbelief that doubts the very loving Father who cares for you. It may get to the place where it's animosity. It may be deceitfulness. I don't need to elaborate any farther. You've got your own list, and you probably know where you have fought with evil within your own heart. And Jesus looked at that fellow and took the evil right out of him. At that point, I think Peter said, Andy, let's take him home for lunch. Because that's what they did. 
And when they got him home, you will remember that they found that Peter's mother-in-law was sick. And so in those days, she had a high fever. There were no antibiotics. It was serious. He said, where is she? And they took him to her, and he laid his hands on her, and she was healed. Now, in John, you get a passage where he says, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John makes him the creator by proposition. But here you get a picture story of the eternal Son of God who spoke us into existence, and he has no problem curing that woman of her her disease, and so he touches her and she is healed. Well, at that point, the word begins to spread, and people say there's a remarkable person here, and everybody begins to come to find him, and the people who have sick bring their sick, and the crowd is so great that Jesus says, let's disappear. Now, here is one of the places where Jesus is different from most of the rest of us who are preachers. If I had the crowd coming, I'd relish every moment of it. But now the crowd's coming, and Jesus says, let's get out of town. Now, why did he do that? Let me tell you what I am convinced he, why he did it. I'm convinced that God is never interested in stampeding you into faith. God is more rational than you and I are, and he made us that way, rational. And he wants us, when we make a decision, to make it with all of our being, as far as we can. And so he said, they got a lot of questions in their mind. Let's skip town and let them think a little. And let them talk a little and mull over what they've seen. And so, you will remember, they did. And on, as they traveled, they bumped into the leper. And the leper came, and you will remember, got so close to Jesus that Jesus could lay his hand on his head. Now, you know, this crowd knows enough to know that in those days, a leper was looked upon as unclean, not only physically, disease-wise, but also spiritually. And if the wind blew across a leper and then blew across you, you were defiled and you needed to go to a priest to have the priest clean you up so you were fit for polite society again. And Jesus lets this leper get so close to him. That's the reason that it was perfectly right for religious Jews to, to throw stones at a leper to keep him from getting close enough. He didn't have a right to stop him from their daily tasks. And so Jesus lets him get close enough, he lays his hand on his head. Now, I've often wondered where Peter was at that point, and I suspect knowing Peter, he was as far away as he could get and still see what was going on. And so he says to himself, he's ruined everything. We had plans for today. And then Jesus says, Peter, come here. And Peter says, no, Master, you're unclean now because you touch that leper. And Jesus says, no, Peter, come here. You know, I wonder if when he got up close, Jesus took the hand he'd had on the leper and laid it on Peter's bare arm, pulled him in close. And while Peter's having connections, Jesus says to him, Peter, you don't think there's anything in that leper that can defile me, do you? There's something in me that can cleanse him of his leprosy. Then he says to the leper, son, go home. Now, that has become an incredibly beautiful story to me. Because what he was saying to this fellow who now had been a total outcast, he said, you can go home and eat supper with your children. You can sleep in the same bed with your wife tonight. In the morning, you can go back to your old job. And next Saturday, you can go to synagogue and worship God with, the, with your community of believers. 
And, you know, I don't know anything that our society needs more than somebody who can send a father home to his children, a husband home to his wife, maybe children back to their parents, or people back to their responsibilities, or people back to their synagogue church, back to their church. That would be helpful, wouldn't it? Now, uh, uh, what he is saying is, I'm the one who can restore broken relationships, because I'm the God of peace. And ultimately, in my kingdom, there will be no barriers. And so he says, go home and be restored. Then you remember the next story is the man that the four fellows brought, a paralytic. The crowd was so big they couldn't get near, so they had to climb up on the roof, take the tiles off, and lower him down through. And as he came down about eye level, Jesus looked at him and said, son, your sins are forgiven you. And I'm sure those four guys upstairs said, how'd religion get into this? They didn't bring him because he was a sinner. They brought him because he was a paralytic. And Mark tells us that at that time there was a commotion against the wall because two fellows from the temple were there. And one of them said to the other one, what did he say? And the second one said, well, I thought he said his sins are forgiven. And the first one said, well, that's what I thought he said. Who does he think he is? Nobody can forgive sins but God and God alone. I wonder if at that point Jesus didn't look over and catch the eye of that apoplectic Pharisee and wink and say, that's right, boys, you're beginning to catch on. Because, you see, every one of these stories in Mark is told with a question either implicit or explicit within it. Who is this guy that he can do these things? You will remember that... uh, You get it in some places where it's extremely explicit, like when he stopped the storm and they said, What manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, we could develop that further, but I've told you enough to let you know the way uh, uh, Mark tells these stories. They're stories of despair. They're stories of hopelessness. And in every case, Jesus is the answer to the need of the human heart. Now, the interesting thing is, As we say, they're set so the question is raised, who is he? Now, if you read the Gospel of Mark carefully, you will find that everybody in the Gospel of Mark, by the eighth chapter, had an answer except the disciples. You will remember his family said, he's gone crazy, let's go get him and take him home. You will remember that uh, his, his hometown, Nazareth, said, he's from Wilmore, don't pay any attention to him. Uh, He's a hometown boy. Uh, We know his mother. We know his father. He's a carpenter's boy. Don't let him get presumptuous and propose himself as something unusual. You will remember that uh, the temple said, we know who he is. He has the devil himself in him. He has Beelzebub in him, and that's where he gets his remarkable power to do these things. And you will remember that Herod said, I know who he is. He's John the Baptist, whose head I cut off. Now, he's come back to haunt me. You remember that in the first half of the Gospel of Mark, the only people that knew who he was were the uh, the devils. Because when Jesus cast the devils out on one occasion, they said, we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And on another occasion, he said, we know who you are. You are the Son of God. It's interesting, it was the devils that called him the Son of God, he called himself the Son of Man. 
because he wanted us to know that God had become one of us. Now, with all of that, you come to Caesarea Philippi. And when you get to Caesarea Philippi, Jesus takes his disciples aside and says, Now, boys, you've lived with me for, what, say maybe three years. You've seen me. You've observed me. You've watched everything. You've learned some things. Now, who do you think I am? Everybody else has an answer. And Peter spoke up and said, We think we know. You're the Christ. Now, what did he mean when he said, You're the Christ? That is a highly technical theological term among the Jews. What it means is, Peter was saying, you're the one that God promised to Abraham back in chapter 12 of Genesis. That out of his lineage would come a descendant through whom blessing would come for the whole world. We believe you're the one that God promised to Abraham. You, we remember that Moses said, After me will come one like unto me, but greater than I. If you obey him, if you hear him, you'll live, and if you don't, you'll die. You will remember that David prefigured him, and Isaiah pictured him. Now Peter is saying, You're the one that every Jew is looking for, because the thing that made a Jew a Jew was that he was looking for the Messiah. Now that is a that is a highly dramatic moment, isn't it, in the history of Israel, but also in the history of the world, the Savior is here. But now I think it meant more to Peter than that. I think Peter was saying, you know, Lord, we've watched you teach, you, you give us the truth. We've watched you deliver from the demonic. You're the answer to the problem of evil in the human heart. We've watched you heal the sick. You're the master of the human body. We've watched you restore the social outcast. You're the one who can put us all back together again. We've watched you forgive men's sins. You've done what only God can do. You can restore a man to right relationship with God. Every need that you have seen, you have met and been the answer to. You're the one we're looking for. We hope the world looks for you and recognizes you. But we know who you are and you're the one we've been waiting for because you're the answer to our needs. You're our hope. But I also wonder if implicit in that isn't something more. I think Peter later would have said, if I didn't realize it then, I certainly realized it later. He was saying, Lord, you are the one that every person who exists is looking for. Because, you see, God has made us for himself. So when he says, you're the Christ, he's saying, you're the one that everybody in the world is looking for. You know, that's the thing that gives an evangelist, a Christian evangelist, comfort. That's the thing that gives a Christian witness comfort. Because you uh, always know that the person to whom you're witnessing, God has made that person so there's something inside him that when he hears it authentically knows there is a great need. He's made for the one whom you present. And so in that high moment, Peter said, we know who you are. You're the answer to every person's need, no matter what it is. And Jesus says, good, now you know who I am.
Now let me tell you what I'm going to do. We're six months away from Jerusalem. So we'll turn our steps southward now and head for the holy city. And when we get there, I will be seized. I will be brutally mistreated. I will be nailed to a cross. I will die. And when I die, they'll bury me. And after three days, I will rise from the dead. Now, I wish I were smart enough and dramatic enough to portray what went on in Peter at that moment. Because Peter's been on the mountain of exhilaration. We have the hope of the ages here. We have the one who's going to deliver us. We have the Savior. We have the son of David, the king. He's going to establish his kingdom. It's going to be glorious. And we're going to have a part in that kingdom. And Jesus says, now we go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified. And Peter spun on him and says, never. You haven't learned your line. That's not the way this story is going to turn out. And Jesus turns to Peter and uses the strongest language he ever used to anyone. Stronger than he used to the people who crucified him, the temple. He said, get behind me, Satan. And then he said, you don't think the way God thinks. You think the way men think. Now, that line has become extremely significant to me because uh, not too long ago I got a CD-ROM that had on it all the works of John Wesley, 14 volumes. <laughs> so I thought I'd try it, so I went through the finder section for the phrase, the mind which was in Christ Jesus. Do you know that's the way John Wesley understood what Christ was doing on the cross? was to give me the mind which was in Christ Jesus, and he added a line after it regularly, that we might have the mind which was in Christ Jesus and walk as he walked. Isn't that incredible? I wish we had the time to go through all those references in Wesley. I've only begun to assimilate them. But again and again, when somebody asked him what he meant by salvation in its fullness, he would say it means to have the mind which was in Christ Jesus, to think the way Christ thought and to walk the way he walked. And the implication is if you think the way he th thinks, there's a chance of walking the way he walks. And if you don't think the way he thinks, there's no way you can walk the way he walks. You will walk the way... The disciples did. Now, at that point, Jesus says to him, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, for my sake and the gospels, you will save it. Now, it's uh, interesting the transition that takes place in the gospel of Mark at that point. Mark doesn't quit telling stories, but they're different stories for the next six months. 
Instead of the stories being about Jesus, you know what the stories are about? The stories are about the twelve disciples. And the interesting thing is that not a single time after Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ, does a disciple look good for the duration of the book of Mark. Every story about the disciple is a negative one. Now, who are these guys? They're the best the world has to offer. <laughs> They're the men who've left their jobs. They've left their families. They've left their communities. They have done everything that Abraham did. And Abraham is the father of the faithful. And it's not a scene where they look good. Now, let me, let me run through some of the stories. I wish we had time to deal with them successively, but just let me pick. One thing is, it's obvious they don't think, they cannot think his thoughts. So when he talks about the cross, they cannot hear him. You'll remember coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, he says, don't tell anybody until uh, I've risen from the dead. And they urge each other and say, what does he mean, rising from the dead? They could not conceive it. You will remember that uh, as they're traveling in the way, he tells them again about the cross. Mark's comment is, but they didn't understand. They don't have his mind. They don't think the way he thinks. They cannot think the cross. They can think the crown, but they cannot think the cross. You will remember that a little later, he goes through that again. And at that point, Mark makes no comment. He just simply says that Jesus tried to explain the cross to him. I don't know about anybody else, but when I got to that point, I could see Peter and John nudging each other, and Peter saying, there he goes again. He's got this little litany he feels obligated to run through. If he feels better doing it, let him say it and get it out of his system. But what it means, I don't have the vaguest idea. And that's the reason that when the cross came, Peter denied him and fled. He couldn't think it. He could not conceive of the way the world was going to be redeemed. He could think of earthly power. He had no comprehension of divine ways. Now, that's illustrated not only in the fact they couldn't understand, couldn't think his thoughts, but there was a little problem in here of self-interest. You will remember that Jesus said, I noticed you had a very animated conversation today on the road. What were you talking about? And Peter said, John, you tell him. John says, Peter, you always speak for everybody, so go ahead, you tell him. And Jesus says, neither one of you need to tell me. I know what you were talking about. You were arguing about who's going to have first place in the kingdom. You don't understand my kingdom. That's not the kind of kingdom I have. He that is first should be last, and he that is last is the one who will be first. Instead of it being a pyramid like this, in which you climb to get to, those, to the top where there are fewer and fewer spaces up there, and there's more prestige, and there are more perquisites that go with it, my kingdom's the other way around. And what you need to do is be working your way down. Now, that would be interesting if you could run a Methodist annual conference that way, wouldn't it? Now, it'd be interesting if you could run a college faculty that way. 
It would be interesting if you could run a church that way. This way, I mean. But now Jesus said, you fellows never have heard me, have you? And you will remember that uh, John says, well, we did one good thing today. And Jesus said, great, what was that? He said, we found a fellow casting out devils in your name, and we forbade him because he's not one of us. The apostles are the one we want supposed to have the control of the power, aren't they? Now, the ridiculous thing is that in the preceding chapter, you will remember that there was a father who brought his demoniac son to the disciples, who had been traveling all through that countryside, casting out devils, healing the sick. And when, they, when the father brought the son to the disciples, they couldn't help him. Now, John is excoriating a non-apostle for having the power the apostles had in law. That's been repeated a million times in the history of the church, hasn't it? Now, that doesn't do away with the peculiar role of the apostle. But if the apostle doesn't have the power of God in him, the position means that he can't fulfill the purposes for which God put him in that spot. And God's going to get his work done one way or another. You will remember that James and John came to him and said, uh, we have a request to make. <laughs> now, these stories are stacked on top of each other. You could not get them in an ordinary novel because they'd say, this is unrealistic. They must have heard him just a few moments ago say, my kingdom's not like that, but here come James and John. But that's the way you and I are. We don't hear. And so he said, what is it? They said, we like the right hand and the left. And he said, you don't understand my kingdom, do you? Except you become as a little child, you can't be a part of my kingdom. And then the parents bring their children to the disciples and say, would you get him to lay his hands on our children and bless them? And they said, he doesn't have time for children. Are you going to tell me that Mark is not teaching theology that way? Now, what's he teaching? You can know who Christ is. You can know who Christ is and love him. You're not going to tell me Peter didn't love him. He left everything for him. He'd done everything Abraham did. You're not going to tell me John, James, Andrew, Bartholomew, they didn't love him. They loved him, but they didn't understand him. They couldn't think his way. Now, uh, what was the essence of this? The essence of it was what Jesus was talking about when he said, You'll remember in John, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. He said, If any man saves his life, he'll lose it. But if he loses his life for my sake and the Gospels, he'll save it. And that context was when he was talking about the cross. He was saying, I'm going to a cross, and that's the way you're going to be saved. And you're going to a cross, and that's the way the world's going to be saved. Now, I don't know whether you heard me when I said that or not. But that's the key line for tonight. Jesus said, I'm going to a cross, and that's the way you're going to be saved. And it's going to have to be a cross in your life, and that's the way the world's going to be saved. Now, uh, you know, 
I notice that uh, as you go through Mark, when you get to the end, you'll remember that the disciples slept in Gethsemane while Jesus is in agony. That sounds remarkable like. You will remember that Peter denied him. And when they nailed him to the cross, all the men forsook him. Mark says that if it weren't for the women, the disciples wouldn't have known where to go find the tomb on Easter morning. Now, is that the way Christians are supposed to live? There are times when I think American evangelicalism is far closer to Mark 9 and 10 than it is than it ought to be. But at that point, I went and read the book of Acts. And I'm glad the story doesn't end with Mark. Because the interesting thing is, if you read the book of Acts, you will find that everything negative about the disciples in the gospel of Mark is turned around in the first ten chapters of the book of Acts. You remember I said we can't think his thoughts? They're in the upper room and the Holy Spirit comes. And when the Spirit came upon them, they went down into the streets. And the people began to say, what's going on here? And Peter stood up and said, you mean you don't understand? The first evidence of a change in these disciples is they're thinking differently. They said, why, he had to be nailed to the cross. That's the only way the world could be redeemed. Don't you know that the Old Testament prophesied that for 39 books? Now, I don't think he went to seminary in between. But there came an illumination to where he could think the way God thinks. Now, in a subsequent session, I want to pick that up from the Gospel of John and the data there. And it is, it is incredibly clear and it's magnificent. But Peter stood up and said, you don't understand? This is the only way the world can be saved. Through the blood of the Savior, through the blood of the Lamb that's slain. You will remember that uh, they were looking for position after, before. And now they're witnessing in such a way that they get thrown in jail. <laughs> and when they get thrown in jail, they're brought before the authorities. And the authorities rebuke them and say, if you keep talking this way, we're going to have to do something desperate with you. And they knew exactly what they meant. And Peter stands up and says, ought we to obey men or God? I don't know what you think. We have no option. doesn't matter what happens to us, but we have to be faithful to the message that's been given to us in Jesus Christ. And you will remember that they were the means of redemption and deliverance for stacks and stacks of people, and the gospel began to move through the earth doing its redemptive work in the earth through these men that were transformed at Pentecost. Now, let me go back and pick up an interesting item in Mark. Now, at this point, I wish I were an English literature major or some kind of literature major, because what we're dealing with is a piece of literature. I do not think there is an accidental line in the Gospel of Mark. I think Mark knew exactly what he was doing. After I got through all that, you know something I noticed, and I never noticed it until I got through all of that. I noticed how Mark introduces the passage about Caesarea Philippi and the negatives about the disciples. 
and how he ends that section. So that in the early part of chapter 8 and in the end of chapter 10, you get two, two stories of two miracles of giving sight to blind men. The first one, you will remember, he touched his eyes and told him to go washing. He could see men as trees walking. And he touched them a second time and he could see clearly. The end story in the end of chapter 10 is Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus. And Jesus delivers him from his blindness and he can see perfectly clearly. Now let me ask you. If Mark teaches theology by story, are those two stories theological? Are they saying he didn't have any problem with physical blindness? It was just the blindness of the disciples he had a problem with. And I wonder if the greatest problem in our world is not physical blindness, but the blindness of those of us that call ourselves Christian. That we've never learned his way. We don't live the way he lived. And we need to let God bring us to the place where we think the way he thinks. And if we think the way he thinks, if his mind is put within us, then we can walk as he walked. And how different life will be. Now, uh, there are a thousand ways that this could be illustrated. But let me, let me say two things before we close. I told you in the beginning that that question came to me, are there Christians and then are there Christians? Well, the Christians uh, that were with Jesus prior to Pentecost were different from the Christians that came through Pentecost, the cross and Pentecost. Now, are there Christians and Christians that way now? Let me tell you what I've come to believe. And I, part of this comes out of Scripture, and part of it comes out of my own experience. At that point, I guess I'm a Wesleyan who believes that experience should uh, check with Scripture, and Scripture should be the key to experience. And the two fit together. The one is a commentary on the other. You know, it dawned on me one day that I never really felt very sinful before I became a Christian. Am I the only person who was ever that way? I was a pretty good guy until I became a Christian. I was baptized, member of the church, took communion. My father and mother saw to it I was there four times every Sunday. And to insult me occasionally took me on Wednesday night. And I went. And if you had asked me, you know, and uh, I was quite... Proud of myself. And then I became a Christian. And after I became a Christian, I began to find dimensions in my heart that troubled me. Troubled me a whale of a lot more than my self-righteousness did before I became a Christian. Now I knew him. And I met him. And I lived with him. And as I lived with him, I saw there was a difference between him and me. As one guy said, I saw his humility and I saw my pride. 
I saw his meekness, and I saw my arrogance. I saw his openness and candor, and I saw my deceitfulness. You can keep on going with that, can't you? Do you know I've decided you have to be a Christian and walk pretty close to Christ before you find out how sinful the human heart is? The depths of that uh, ego-centeredness that's there, that says, I want my way. Now, Lord, I want you on board because I need you. Who doesn't need God? But it's my advantage to have you and then I'll call some of the conditions. You see, after I got acquainted with those missionaries, God began to deal with me about that total surrender. And I can remember very well when God said, Ken Law, I've come into your heart, I've come into your life, I've forgiven you your sins, I've put new life inside you. And I loved him. Don't tell me I didn't love him, I did. He said, now can I have all of you? I said, oh, sure. He said, now what's that you got on the corner there? I said, well, that's my thumb. He said, well, uh, take it off. I said, you mean you've got to have the whole shooting match? He said, yeah, that's what I want. All. Total. I said, you mean I can't even have a finger in my life? He said, is it going to be mine? Don't tell me you're all mine if you've still got a finger in it. And I said, Lord, you mean I can't have a finger in my life? He said, not if you're going to be wholly mine. Why do you want a finger in your life? Are you smarter than I am? I blushed and said, no. He said, uh, don't you trust me? I blushed and said, well, yeah, I trust you. Well, he said, take it off. And I found I couldn't. Nobody ever knows the depth of his sinfulness until he's walked with God a little while. Then my heart, when he said, are you going to take it off? I found out I couldn't. You know, there's not going to be anybody in heaven who pats himself on the back and said, I gave my life to God. <laughs> Every life that God ever got, he had to take. And he had to take it over our protests. Because there is a basic unbelief in the human heart that is afraid to turn loose. And I can remember finally getting to the place where I said, Lord, I can't turn loose. And he said, are you willing for me to crack your knuckles? I said, Lord, I guess that's the only way it'll ever come. Well, he said, may I crack your knuckles? You know, I got to the place where I knew that it was one way. You know, there's ultimately no middle ground. You're either going to have to go all the way or back out sooner or later. If you, if you walk with him and keep walking with him. And I found I thought, the thought of living without him in my life, I couldn't conceive it. And he said, well, turn loose. And I said, I can't. 
He said, will you let me work on you? <clears throat> About eight years ago, I developed a bit of a friendship with a Romanian Baptist pastor. His name is Joseph Tsan. Joseph Tsan pastored under one of the most brutal dictatorships in the world, Ceausescu, the communist in Romania. And uh, he was pastor of the biggest Baptist church in Romania. And when the government began to claim the fetuses and the wombs of women as their own property, he protested, and so the government decided to put him out of business. So they went into his home and stripped his library, went into his study and stripped his library. They missed two books. One of those books was Martin Niemöller's prison experience under Hitler. He told me, he said, Kenlaw, I put it on my nightstand to help me get through the nights. The other was E. Stanley Jones' Abundant Living. He put it on the shelf in his study. They began interrogating Joseph five days a week and up to eight hours a day, and commonly with a cock-loaded revolver on the table in front of the chief interrogator. And the purpose was to terrify him and destroy him. And he said they were succeeding. He said, one day I came in, went into my study and shut the door. And he told me, he said, Kenlaw, I fell on my face on the floor. And he said, uh, I fell on my face sobbing, bawling my heart out. Didn't matter that I was a grown man. I was sobbing my heart out saying, God, I can't take any more. They're destroying me. I'll never forget Joseph looked at me and said, Ken Law, I don't think it ever happened to me but three times, but I think I heard a voice. And the voice said, Joseph, get up. And he said, I got up. And the voice said, read the book on the shelf. He said, no problem. Which one? It was only one there. So he said, I pulled down East Stanley Jones' Abundant Living, opened it, and the page my eye hit was how to live above your circumstances. He said it was on Jesus facing the cross. And he said, Jones said that Jesus did not resist the cross. He did not fight it. He embraced it. And Joseph Tsan said to me, I thought, am I understanding? So he said, I asked, Lord. Do you mean that I'm supposed to embrace that interrogator in these interrogations? And the Lord said, that's right. He said, I looked up and said, Lord, if I'm to embrace that interrogator in those interrogations, you've got to do something in my heart you've never done before. I'll never forget, he said very simply. And Ken Lowy did. He said, I walked back into those interrogations, and it was almost ludicrous the change. He said, before that, it was I who was in trauma. After that, it was the chief interrogator who was in trouble. He was beside himself because he'd lost control of me. So he said, one day he spun on me and said, Joseph, you're stupid. I guess the only thing we can do is just go ahead and kill you. 
And I never heard this line quite this way before, but Joseph said, And I found myself saying, I understand. That's your ultimate weapon. When everything else has failed, you can always kill. Now, he said, I have an ultimate weapon. When you use yours, I get to use mine. Chief interrogator said, and what is your ultimate weapon? Well, he said, yours is to kill. Mine's to die. And when I die, I'm not worse off. I'm a whale of a lot better off. But you, when I die, every tape of every sermon that I've preached that's scattered across Romania is going to be sprinkled with my blood. And you're going to have a lot more of a mess of a time with me dead than you've had with me alive. And the communist said, take him out. He said, a few weeks later, I found out through the grapevine that they were saying, Joseph's crazy. He wants to be a martyr. We're not stupid. He said, Ken Law, I couldn't even talk him into killing me. He said, you remember? He said, when I was pulling every string I could pull to save my life, I was losing everything. And he said, when I turned it loose, he said, you know, as a guy said something about that once, except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. Get your hands off where your holy head is, and you step into a completely new dimension of living. Then you can think different. And you can embrace what otherwise you would fight. You see, Jesus embraced the cross. And if the world is going to be saved, if the world is going to be reached, Christians are going to have to embrace a sacrificial way of life that you and I, most of us, know little about. But if we ever think the way he thinks, what a privilege it is. Now, listen. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, get their finger out of their lives, take up their cross, some dies, that's your finger in your life, and follow me. Where'd he go? He went through a cross. Now, that's said to believers, not to unbelievers. So he says, for those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and lose their soul or forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the Holy Angel.